Hey, 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 what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the next episode of the Whistling in the Dark podcast. Uh, this is episode 14. Today is July 30th, 2018. Um, it's actually been a little more than a week. Uh, hopefully I'm not uh, continuing to stretch out this time in between episodes more and more. <clears throat> uh, but I, I kind of knew that uh, I, had, I had a bunch of stuff. I've been house shopping, uh, looking for houses. House shopping sounds pretty fucking stupid. Uh, I've been looking at houses to buy. And, um, yeah, I would have to do a lot of it, you know, on the weekends. And But I actually knew I was going to have time tonight to be able to do it. So I decided to skip the weekend and, you know, do that, uh, do, do the episode today. Um, so... This, uh, you know, I guess I should, uh, I could do a a brief discussion on on house house hunting as a libertarian. So, um, you know, I, I I've talked about my uh, past uh, as far as like coming into being a libertarian before. Um, I, you know, I originally. Uh, you know, I would describe myself mostly as just kind of, just sort of like angry, but like sort of unplugged, uninvolved, uh, you know, for most of my life. <clears throat> you know, I, I certainly think that I grew up uh, with a healthy distaste uh, for government, but, you know, I think also big corporations, you know, any anybody that was sort of and that upper echelon of, you know, the power structure uh, of the country, you know, I don't think I grew up uh, thinking uh, thinking very highly of, and certainly not feeling any remotely a part of that, um, <clears throat> you know, but it wasn't until, uh, yeah, I can remember, uh, I, I remember this one conversation I had with this guy, I was an undergraduate, I was a little bit older but I mean, I was still in my like early twenties, um, an undergraduate. I was studying physics at Drexel University in Philly, and I was in the car with a uh, few guys, and I don't know what we were talking about um, exactly. But I remember making the statement that, you know, uh, some something about that, you know, like I think that like basically like every government. Any form of government will like ultimately fail, you know, until, you know, and we maybe we, you know, don't ever get to this, but people achieve some sort of like mankind sort of has some spiritual awakening where they no longer need government. 
uh, you know, and then pretty much anything will work because everybody's just going to be trying to, like, help each other out. <laughs> and, uh, you know, this guy, uh, this guy, and he was younger than me, and he, he made the uh, comment that, <clears throat> well, you know, even, you know, even in that case, like, people are still going to have to, like, build roads and do all that stuff. And it's, it's kind of funny that, uh, you know, I wasn't coming with the libertarian argument, I was basically coming with like the sort of pure no hope argument that there's just there is no system that will work. Why even try? Uh, and so that was my earliest meeting with the who will build the roads uh, argument or question that libertarians and free market, you know, anarcho capitalists and voluntarists. Uh, are bludgeoned with uh, on a nearly daily basis. Um, but I remember hearing that and I was like, oh, you know, it's like good point, you know. And so at that point, I, you know, that my definition of what government was had little to nothing to really do with violence at the core. I mean, the reality is I probably just had some ill-defined notion of government and I, I hadn't really ever really thought about what do I mean when I say government you know what is you know what is the definition or at least you know my definition um, I I hadn't thought about the question you know what makes government different from a non-government organization you know and I don't mean specifically an NGO um, just, you know, anything, um, you know, if uh, a group of friends, you know, form a dart club or a pool club or a bike club, you know, what's, you know, what is, what's the difference? Um, you know, if I go around and ask, uh, I've been, this is something we were talking about. I, I was looking in this one neighborhood <clears throat> and I, I noted it was very close to another one and, uh, I, I was saying it's hard to put my finger on exactly why this neighborhood doesn't look quite as nice, um, but there's something. And and one of the things I noticed is like, wow, it feels like the forest is is really like encroaching on the neighborhood, whereas the other one built similar time and everything. It's just kind of tamed, you know, cut back. And my uh, real estate agent said that, you know, that she said that's actually something you can do something about. You know, if you did move here, you can like go around the neighborhood and try to, you know, get a little bit of an organization and maybe collect a little money from people to pay somebody to actually clear some stuff out and, you know, back back stuff off of the roads a little bit and kind of just open up the neighborhood. Um, but, you know what? And so what's the difference? Uh, between that and a government doing it through a tax, it's, you know, the voluntary nature of the interaction, the lack of the threat of violence, you know, and that to me is is the real fundamental difference, um, you know, uh, uh, between the government and any other, <clears throat> any other organization is, you know, purely voluntary, uh, you know, you may have, uh, you may have, I mean, you know, entering into a contract, you know, if you buy a house and there's a, you know, an HOA or something, you know, there's some legal, you know, binding nature to, you know, having to pay the fees and everything, you know, like that. But, you know, you you 
you know, voluntarily enter, you, you know, you bought that house and entered into that agreement. You know, um, none of us signed any agreement with the United States. And even if we did, it's just get continually um, changed, you know, uh, so fast and with just so many volumes of legalese that nobody would have even the foggiest clue what the contract is. Even the people making the rules, nobody knows, you know. Um <clears throat> Anyway, this is a big old ramble, ramble on. Um, but so that, you know, I, I kind of accepted that. Uh, and then, you know, where after that, uh, you know, I don't know that there was a whole lot of movement. Um, you know, the time wise, we're talking right after 9-11. 9-11 happened. Uh, I believe in my first year, I actually went to community college for a couple of years and then transferred to Drexel. Uh, and the, yeah, 9-11 happened. I believe it was my first semester down there. I guess I had done a spring sort of semester before. Um, so maybe my second semester, but like living down there and everything. And, um, you know, so uh, the the only other thing I would say that I, you know, that I can kind of honestly remember is, you know, being pretty anti-war uh, in general, you know, not, uh, you know, not certainly not as as strong or convinced as I am now. Um, but, it, you know, it's just bad vibes, you know, and uh, and I, I believe I said it on. Uh, a previous episode, but I can distinctly remember on 9-11 watching the videos, you know, the, the and uh, thinking in my head, like, man, so many more people are going to die because of this. And uh, yeah, you know, so to uh, like a 24-year-old kid who's almost... Uh, you know, made an effort to avoid learning about politics, you know, that was pretty obvious. And, you know, it was just a reaction. And, you know, there was no kind of conspiracy in that or anything. You know, it was just at that point, it was just, man, you know, the world is a fucked up place and there's no hope. And this is the way it's going to go. Um so, it, yeah, and then I moved, you know, eventually went to grad school and, um, you know, one of the big events for me was uh, meeting a guy uh, that that was a libertarian and, you know, not a not like a ton of conversations, um, but, you know, I, I remember, you know, the really turning point. I mean, what I recognized in my mind as the turning point. Like the moment the tide shifted and, you know, maybe I wasn't fully libertarian at that moment, um, for sure. I mean, I had so much to learn and, but, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, that was it. The direction changed and, and I, I you know, I headed the other way after that towards, you know, voluntarism. And, um, <clears throat> I had said that, well, you know, I mean, obviously, if, you know, the government, uh, you know, people in the government are going to, you know, going to help their friends. You know, I mean, it's like 
just a simple, I don't know if it's nepotism or whatever. But I mean, I, I feel like the idea of nepotism is just fundamental human nature that very, very few people are above if anybody, if any, you know, anybody, you know, if I became president of the United States, you don't think, you know, my mom would be, you know, living in some like beautiful house somewhere, somehow, some way, you know what I mean? Like, I'm going to make that happen. And it's not going to be because of the official salary that I'm receiving as a president, you know, or my brothers or my other friends, you know, what I mean? you know, it's just it's going to happen. And that seemed obvious to me. And yeah, and maybe that compiles and gets really, really bad. And so, you know, it seemed that, you know, the idea of sort of like government, like controlling the economy was, you know, seemed very problematic. You know, so again, I, I mean, I, you know, I wonder if, if there is this sort of just fundamental difference between people that can kind of like hear the libertarian philosophy and have it make sense, people that can't, because you, you know, you could kind of just track, you know, back at least these few stories I said that, you know, I wasn't walking around with any love for governments, you know, just like in general. It just seemed like a fundamentally flawed idea giving people these special powers. But the big thing is what I followed up and the thing that, you know, kind of kept me kind of ping ponging back and forth uh, in this kind of, you know, um, like in between space. Uh, and that was that I also told him, I said, yes, like and so, yeah, I think that's true. I said, but, you know, but if you just have and, and I use the phrase unbridled capitalism. <laughs> but if you, you know, you just have like unbridled capitalism, you're just going to have one company swallow another company, swallow another until, you know, they've all swallowed each other up. And there's just one giant mega corporation that swallowed up the last one. And then by definition, um, the, uh, the free market has kind of killed itself. So that that was how I saw it. I saw it as just, you know, you're just between a rock and a hard place because if you let the free market go, you know, you're just going to have w eventually just one mega corporation ruling them all. And if you, you know, go the direction of government control, then it's just going to be this just compounded nepotism, you know, that that's going to end in, in, in a bad way as well. And he said, that's because you don't understand how economics works. And then he explained a little bit about the idea that, you know, in a free market, it, uh, like a truly free market, there is kind of like a sweet spot for the size of a corporation, you know, and, and going above that, that sort of sweet spot in size so leads them open to competition and, you know, being, you know, maybe undercut or beaten out by, you know, uh, a faster moving upstart, you know, so it's, you know, maybe you have this, this incumbent company that has 50% market share and the other 50% is divided between a couple companies. And so maybe the, the main player kind of raises some more capital, takes on some debt and, and tries to expand out to sort of like cut out one of these other companies. And, you know, and it's just, if, if that market, market doesn't support that kind of like market sort of dominance, you know, of one company with 75% or something, you know, they, they sort of leave themselves open. And, you know, you could think of all kinds of scenarios that are different, but, you know, maybe, maybe what happens is some, some portion of their, you know, um, customer base is now 
underserved because they're sort of focusing out on expanding and expanding logistically and some kind of like smaller thing that, you know, they, they it's deemed maybe not as profitable or whatever in this expansion starts to sort of lose the service. Their experience isn't good or whatever. Their product isn't as good. And a startup forms around the express, you know, purpose of serving, you know, that that market share and you know and maybe it's even small you know maybe it's a five percent or something like that and they do that but they lock it in you know and they have this sort of loyal customer and 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 uh and and the big company sort of has trouble just sustaining this sort of growth they're not really picking up the market share and in fact they lost it you know and anyway like basically it's like you've allowed this fourth company now to come in and get a real market share at only five percent but maybe that's not the equilibrium maybe it's not 45 5 25 25 Maybe once you have four companies in there, it's like all of them have 25 or, you know, around there or something. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't doesn't necessarily equilibrate exactly where it is. And, you know, this expansion attempt without any interference by like, you know, government, you sort of forcing people to buy things or whatever or set prices by gunpoint. This company may wind up with a lesser share, and they tried to expand, and they wound up shrinking. I mean, it, anyway, so that that was like, you know, he he didn't like prove the case to me, but he just opened my eyes up to the idea that there is an argument to be made for that. That maybe the way I thought about the hopelessness of the free market may not be as hopeless as I thought. Uh, you know, and then I just, that, that, you know, like I said, after that, I just sort of ran, you know, ran with it. Um, you know, and so, uh, it, so I, this is still kind of in the context of housing, actually, because I was sort of setting up like, you know, that that would have been like 2004, uh, maybe 2005. Um, so, you know, I was definitely exposing, you know, getting exposed to this kind of stuff um, before, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, before, you know, the 2008 collapse, um, you know, and before, uh, even, you know, even, you know, before ever hearing of Ron Paul and stuff. And, you know, so by the time, um, you know, 2008 came around and I, I was, I was pretty solid on a lot of this, um, you know, again, probably not as strong as I am now, although I haven't stayed, you know, I mean, like don't consistently read as much. I, I feel like I kind of got to a point where I was good. Like I basically was was like, pretty well convinced on my my part of, you know, free market versus the government. Um, and, uh, you know, it was just kind of like, well, I don't think I'm going to be a politician I don't think I'm going to be a podcaster, but then look at me now. So who knows? You know, I, it's I, I should probably start reading uh, and get back a little more serious. So, uh, you know, I can talk with more authority on the Whistling in the Dark podcast. Um, but yeah, so <clears throat> 2008 comes around and this collapse that, you know, I've been kind of hearing people talk about. Uh, you know, again, I wasn't as wired in. I mean, I was also like getting a PhD in physics. I mean, you're you're not. Uh, I, <laughs> as you can imagine, that is a period in your life where you are not the most wired into current events. Um, so I, uh, you know, I saw that, and then 
You know, and, and the basic idea, you know, Tom Woods came out really strong after, wrote a, wrote a book, um, can't remember what it's called, but he wrote a book, like, really soon he released it after, nine, uh, after the, you know, the kind of big collapse and the bailouts and everything. And, you know, his basic thesis was that, yeah, there was, you know, subprime lending and, and there was loose standards. And that's what most people blamed it on, you know, predatory, predatory lending. But the reality was it's the Fed, the Federal Reserve and the, that the Fed's monetary policy that actually is the reason that we had such a crazy boom and then which led to such, you know, a bad, long, many year, very severe recession. And um, it's just the idea of in a free market, interest rates at banks are a function of how much money they have in their reserve. So if a bank starts off with a million dollars and, you know, they set, let's say, a you know, a 2% interest rate, you know, and after a month, you know, they're down to $500,000 and these loans are, you know, years, I mean, they're not coming right back. Uh, you know, they have less. It's just, I mean, it's just supply and demand. It's, it's, it's really not that complex and is not rocket science, you know, that if they now only have $500,000 left and they loaned out $500,000 in a single month and they're not seeing that back in a year at 2%, they're going to raise their rates. And then as that money gets lent out, if it keeps getting lent out, and because it can't do more work than it already is in a free market, right? Like they lent that money out at five hundred, you know, at two percent, the first, you know, half of their money. You know, they basically would regret it. They'd be like, "Damn, you know, we can't lend it out again." So now it's just stuck, and we're waiting for this to come back. So you know, their whole thing is like getting these you know, loans out at, at like good market interest rates. And, and if they're sort of running out of capital, they're naturally going to raise their rates. But, what, you know, our monetary system completely cuts the connection between these two things. The, you know, the interest rates are largely just dependent on the Federal Reserve's, uh, uh, I forget what their rate is called, I think they call it like the overnight window or something like that. Um, but, you know, as long as that's low, every other interest rate is going to be low. That's You know, everything is, is somehow like a weird function of that fundamental like Fed rate. You know, when the Fed has interest rates at zero, I mean, that doesn't mean your mortgage is at zero, but you better believe it's going to be pretty fucking low. Uh, it's certainly low in historical, uh, you know, by historical standards. Um, you know, so in end, they, they can get like access to the banks. So the banks have these, you know, super low interest rates uh, through, you know, the real estate bubble. And they have access to like all the money, it, they, like they don't have like a limit, right? They can just borrow and borrow and borrow and keep, they can just borrow money and loan it out, borrow money and loan it out because they can borrow it at like 0% or 1% and, and loan it to you at like 4% or 5%, you know? And it's like unbelievable that these, 
these institutions are going belly up, right? And like having it bailed out. Like these are just the worst businessmen in the world, you know? But they're not, right? They're just cronies. It's just crony, crony capitalism. And they uh, they don't give a fuck because the guys at the top, they're going to get, you know, they're super rich. I mean, tons of money off of this. And then they get fucking bailed out anyway, you know, by tarp and all that shit. And I mean, God knows what the, you know, who, what exactly the Fed did. The Fed put, spent trillions of dollars propping up the economy. Um, so anyway, uh, so I, you know, I sort of saw all that. And, uh, and then since then, till now, you know, um, you, you know, we went through the recession, and I think, at least from the housing price, because I've been looking at the housing price stuff a lot lately, it's uh, uh, the, um, what the heck's it called? Something Schiller Index? That kind of bottomed out sometime, I think, in 2012. So, um, you know, since then, kind of home prices have been rising, and it's, you know, it's funny, uh, you know, I just didn't really look into it, I guess. Uh, and I just thought, you know, oh, yeah, home prices are, like, back up. You know, I think I first started thinking about buying a house in, like, 2014. Uh, but, you know, at that point, it probably had been going up a couple of years. But, you know, now it's four years later. It's been going up this whole time. Uh, and, uh, you know, they've been starting to raise interest rates over the last couple of years. Um so this is a really long story. I just thought it may be interesting to just talk, kind of talk about the history of, you know, my kind of uh, libertarian thinking or whatever. Um, but, you know, I, I thought it also kind of played into this context or, you know, there's this thing. OK, so since so Peter Schiff was right. Right. If you don't know what I'm talking about, if you don't know that video. Just, you know, type it into YouTube. There's a, you know, really famous YouTube video called Peter Schiff was right. Peter Schiff is a uh, stockbroker. He owns Schiff Capital, you know, investment guy. Uh, and he's also a follower of the Austrian, uh, you know, Austrian School of Economics. Um, so one of the few people that you would ever see on, you know, MSNBC or something um, on, and, you know, CNN Money or whatever shows he went on uh, talking about. You know the Austrian school and 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 sort of our our way of thinking about the economy and everything and you know so there's things in this video of him in 2005 talking to the Mortgage Bankers Association of America just saying like look guy like you know like you gotta stop like this is gonna you know this is a huge bubble and it's gonna burst and it's gonna like eviscerate this industry you know. <laughs> Uh, so, um, and there's just tons and tons of people, you know, they, they'll have them on like, you know, one of these CNN money things where a uh, clip of him and like, you know, whatever, 2006, where he's basically saying like, yo, man, this huge fucking bubble is forming and a collapse is coming. And this is exactly why. And he describes exactly what ultimately wound up happening. And, um, you know, they're like laughing him out of the room. And so this was a very, you know, this was like a very, um, like a great sort of libertarian moment or whatever, you know, particularly for the libertarians that are, you know, 
believers of the Austrian school, you know, it was like this vindication, right? You know, our guy was right and he told you all along. So for like the last 10 years, I have been listening to Peter Schiff since then. Basically saying, get ready, this this next collapse is going to be worse than the last one. Uh, and, you know, I don't think that, like, Mises is wrong or Hayek or Murray Rothbard or Carl Menger, you know, whatever you, you know, whoever is your favorite Austrian. But, and I know that the Austrians, you know, the Austrian school doesn't lend itself to these types of predictions. And maybe that's just kind of it. You know what I mean? It's that Peter Schiff right, rightly, you know, buys into the Austrian school thinking, but sort of wrongly tries to use it as justification for time-based predictions, which are very hard. I mean, you talk about like the, I mean, and sometimes he, he does say, it, you know, I mean, I'm not, he's not claiming to know exactly the date something's going to happen, but he feels like it's inevitable, um, you know, unless some major course correction occurs. <clears throat> and um, I, I don't know, you know what I mean? Like I basically sat around for the last four, four years not buying a house because, like, I'm scared this collapse is going to happen and just think, like, well, you know, they've just been, they've had interest rates so low for so long even after the collapse and, uh, you know, they're doing the same exact thing that they did before. Um, you know, and it's, <clears throat> I, you know, I could have looked at that Schiller index uh, or, you know, whatever and, you know, seen that actually for, you know, two th up until like 2012, man, and prices were falling, you know, it was, uh, you know, they, um, they talk about in the, in trading, what do they say? Like, don't, something like, don't try to catch a falling knife, you know, like real, really like this whole time where I'm listening to, you know, shift talk about, oh man, you know, they're just blowing up another bubble. I mean, I, you know, I don't know what other indicators you're looking at. I'm, you know, I'm no expert. But if I happen to have been looking at the Schiller index, I mean, for those years, there was just a, a, a straight, like, you know, crashing of the real estate prices for like four years. And I'm not saying like the Fed is operating correctly or doing anything correctly. It's not, you know, it's nothing about that. But it's that... It's that type of analysis that, well, yes, I do think that, like, on some time scale, this Federal Reserve system is doomed to fail. You know, but, I mean, is that saying much? You know what I mean? Like, if I'm not willing to put some time scale, so it's like, yes, within the next million years i think the you know federal reserve is going to uh you know fail i uh, go you know whatever like we're not going to be using it anymore you know um i don't know i you know and i i mean so but i still have this fear you know i feel like as a child like i was raised catholic and I should have had this this implicit, like, embedded fear of the devil and going to hell and stuff like that. Uh, and, you know, and that thing kind of haunted me, you know. I remember, like, having sex the first time. And 
despite, like, honestly not believing any of that, like, not believing Jesus Christ is like my Lord and Savior, really not believing in anything in particular, there still was a part of me that felt some kind of fear, like, oh, shit, you fucked up. You know, that's the big one, premarital sex. Somehow that's, like, the worst thing, right? I'm pretty sure, like, like murdering somebody isn't somehow as bad as premarital sex if you're a Catholic. Um but, you know, now I feel like I'm walking around with this fear and I don't know how to tell the difference between, okay, sh you know, prices have been going up now. You know, they've been going up steadily. I mean, I you know, I think they kind of slowly bottomed out 2012. I don't want to just pull this, pull this baby up. Schiller Index. Uh, oh, Case, Case Schiller Index. Man, I fucking sound like I got a speech impediment. <clears throat> uh, yeah, okay. Um, let's see if I can get more details. This is actually pretty interesting. Like, where's the description of this? Um, uh, Standard and Poor's. Let's bring this down to this monitor. Standard & Poor's Case Schiller Home Price Indices are repeat sales house price indices of the United States. There are multiple Case Schiller Home Price Indices, National Home Price Index, whatever. I don't need these. Uh, and, well, so the according to their this index, which I really don't know what this number, it goes from 60 at a bottom to 200 so up until 1980 um probably the, we had a peak in the eight late 1800s it went over 120 and it never got up to that level until looks like the late 80s early 90s um then it went down and then in you know kind of went down in sort of like the late 90s, I guess, it started this humongous climb, just crazy, crazy, crazy climb up to nearly 200. And then it collapsed down, down, down. And now we're climbing back up. Um, but it's, you know, the collapse got down to like 120. Pretty interesting. Um, and now we're climbing back up. We're like at 160 now. So, you know, you can't look at like a single single indicator uh, to really help you out. Um, or know what's, you know, know what's going on. But, uh, you know, it all, all basically looks the same. Um, I mean, the point is, is that somewhere, at, you know, maybe in 2012, we had like the absolute bottom you know, I've been climbing since. So, you know, now we're, say, five or six years climbing up. You know, I mean, if, if, if nothing else is accurate, it does seem that there are, you know, the, the business cycle is certainly uh, holds. And, um, you know, we should see another, should see another pullback. Uh, but, you know, you just have no idea when. I mean, you know, you. 
I don't know, you know, in the, in the 50s, uh, you know, it kind of rose up and, you know, home prices were, you know, not all that volatile. I mean, there was sort of a slow drop through the kind of late 50s and 60s to 70s and you know, it wasn't really till the 80s, I guess, or maybe the late 70s that things started getting more volatile again. Um, you know, so but that's a long, you know, 50 to like 80. I mean, this is almost 30 years of, of uh, kind of flat, you know, kind of flat prices. So, you know, what's sort of governing that? I, I don't know. But, I, you know, to me, I think that you got to look you got to look at the actions of the Federal Reserve and the monetary policy of the Federal Reserve. Um, so, so uh, the whole kind of summary is, is that it's interesting to be looking at a house because it sort of goes against, um, you know, my... Uh, Oh, actually, we're we're actually with uh, that Wikipedia um, graph. I don't think was like all the way up to present day. We have actually surpassed the index of two thousand eight, or so probably late two thousand seven. It started this sort of. Uh, it had a little dip, head fake. Uh, Peter Schiff always talks about like so. Two thousand six actually really peaked. Had a little head fake, rise back up in two thousand seven. And kind of somewhere in 2007, it started the decline. And then 2008, you know, really went down. And then there was a little bit of a, a return in 2010. Another, you know, drop all back to a little bit lower, 2012. And then now we've been on this rise. But this rise has been a, you know, this rise is like almost ri rivaling the... Um, It's almost, you know, it's almost rivaling the, uh, you know, the 2008 bubble, like the lead into the 2008 bubble. So, you know, where are we on, on this thing? I mean, I don't know. And, you know, I can, I'm sure wages haven't been increasing like that, you know. Um, so, uh, yeah, anyway, and uh, another thing is interest rates have gone up. They've actually even increased uh, mortgage interest rates in just like the month or so that I've been looking um, yeah, so, uh, I don't really, uh, you know, I don't know. It'll be interesting to say, I mean, I have this, you, I mean, I think when you're, you know, there's macroeconomic stuff to think of, and then, you know, there's just your own personal life and your own sort of psychology that you've got to kind of work with. And, um, you know, I mean, I think if you get into a house, uh, payment where, you know, you like it, you like your house, you like living there, and it's a monthly payment that, you know, you can sustain, um, you know, as long as the, the loan's fixed, right, which I think most are these days, I mean, yeah, it may, you know, it may turn out to not be the best, you know, deployment of your capital, you know, might if if there was, you know, if I if I did that and then the you know the market went down by twenty five percent over the next couple of years. I mean, yeah, it's not a great investment, but you know, I'm. It's not like I'm under. You know, it's not like I'm bankrupt, right? And just keep paying it and and you know living there and. 
as long as like my wages aren't dropping with it, you know, and st- that that sort of a thing, I think I'd be okay. Um. So anyway, that's all. That's my little uh, piece. Housing prices are are pretty far up, uh, and they've been climbing since 2012. It'd be interesting to see where they go. And it's uh, it's been interesting to me that they've climbed with the Fed uh, lowering or <laughs> lowering raising interest rates. You know, um, I don't know where they're up. I think they're up like two percent now. So uh, they they still haven't like in an obvious way prick this bubble uh, to send us into another recession. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, that's what we have. I um, I saw this article that I liked, and I wanted to talk about it. It's actually from last year, but it, I thought it was interesting. Is America encouraging, encouraging the wrong kind of entrepreneurship from the Harvard Business Review, written by... Uh, two people, one Robert E. Litton and another Ian Hathaway. So, um, something that, you know, I, you know, we're, I think if you don't actually, you know, dig in and look, you know, we're under the impression that, you know, entrepreneurship, especially with, you know, Silicon Valley and everything, I mean, this is some golden age, right? Um, but I actually think the reality is quite different than that. So um, I'm not saying I totally like agree with this article or anything, but you know I, th- I think it does mention some stats that are interesting. So last month, economist William Baumol passed away at the age of 95. His death was universally mourned by members of the economics community, many of whom share the view that he had passed before receiving a much-deserved Nobel Prize. One of us had the privilege of working with him, befriending him, and being able to regularly witness his economic wisdom. Of Baumol's many contributions to economics, the most famous is cost disease, which explains why... High productivity industries raise costs and therefore prices in low productivity industries. The insight is particularly relevant now as economic activity has shifted into low productivity services like healthcare and education, where price increases are devouring public and household budgets, and whose continued low productivity has weighed down U.S. productivity growth overall. <clears throat> so uh, I do have a problem with that. For I, I don't, I am not very familiar. I am not familiar with this idea of high productivity industries raising costs and therefore prices in low productivity industries. Um, but this insight is particularly relevant now as economic activity has shifted into low productivity services like healthcare and education, where price increases are devouring public and household budgets. So, you know, they're implying that the reason that healthcare is expensive in the United States is because of this guy's idea of that high productivity industries. Or I, I'm not even totally sure what a high productivity industry is. I mean, I, uh, I would think it's something like, you know, making cars or something. I, you know, things that just like directly contribute a lot to like GDP. You know, man, I don't know. May, you know, maybe technology stuff. I, um, 
but I mean, it's like, you know, healthcare is like the, you know, you got healthcare, you got banking, you got in education, some of the least free markets in the United States, you know, price action in those uh, arenas or those industries in the United States are not due to some free market explanation as a result of some other thing. I mean, there is so much government interference in healthcare uh, and in banking, you know, or education. Let's stick the ones they talk about education. I mean, you know, like most kids are going to public school. Like it doesn't, I mean, where, you know, and then like when they're not and they're finally paying, you know, the government sort of cooks up this like, you know, Captain Insano, you know, federal student loan, uh, you know, system where they're just like lowering and lowering interest rates and saying, you know, oh, and then you don't have to pay it off for, you know, this law and you know, these super special, like really, really cheap loans, you know, and they're just and now the students have access to it. You know, if if I didn't have access to, you know, I, I, you know, I don't remember what Drexel was back then, but it was expensive. I mean, if I didn't have access to $30,000, you know, of, of like really cheap money that I didn't have to start paying on right away, you know what I mean? That was like, I, you know, I took out loans in, in 2001, you know, that I, I didn't start paying on until like 2012 or something, you know, and pay no interest on them. Like, they just sat there, you know, pleasant and quiet and just waiting for me to say, okay, I'm ready to, to pay you the absolute minimum payment back, you know, and, you know, at the lowest interest rate. I mean, you know, it's insane. And but because I can get that much money, Drexel can charge me $30,000 because there's they specifically created cheap loans to give to young adults to pay for college. I promise you any other industry or product that you replicate that behavior that the government did in, you will see a massive increase in price. If suddenly the government said, we will give anybody, you know, of the age 18 to 25, a $50,000 loan to go buy a car, 100,000, fuck it. You know what I mean? Like, we'll, we'll give you 50K a year. You can just keep paying, you know, so you can somehow get like an installment so you can, you know, drive some, you know, Rolls Royce or something. Uh, car prices are going to go up. They're going to go up. They're definitely going to go up. It doesn't matter. Whatever you did, you can do it with food. Food prices will go up. If all of a sudden everybody has loans specifically for one reason, you know what I mean? It's like food stamps on steroids. You know, like everybody's got $1,000 a week they can spend now. Now, it's building up their debt, right? They have $1,000 a week of debt. So at the end of the year, they have a $50,000 new debt. But... What do you get? You know, I mean, I sure as hell didn't think about it. I racked up so much debt. I mean, I knew it, it was kind of wrong, 
but I did it anyway, you know? And they set up a place that, like, if you want to get a degree in physics, you know, what are you going to do? I mean, I, I should have went somewhere cheaper, obviously. I mean, that was a that was a mistake. Drexel's not even that good for physics. I should have went to Penn State. I actually already had a semester at Penn State. I mean, Penn State's far better and far cheaper. But, I, you know, I, I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I just didn't, I, you know what I mean? Like, that I really didn't have any, you know, I, I didn't have much guidance on, you know, on the matter. And I mean, in, in, in my family, and I think it's pretty normal, you know, uh, in the United States, the idea of going to school, getting a degree, particularly a degree like physics, like it's just all good, you know? It's by any means necessary. I'm not taking out a loan to buy, you know, a car or, you know, whatever. I don't know if I can use my credit card to, like, buy a flat screen TV or go on vacations or whatever. You know, I'm investing in my education, right? That's how you think of it. Anyway, it's, it's fucking obvious, right? I mean, and when they're talking about the price of education, I mean... The most, most people are sending their children to public school. So the price of education, they're not feeling it directly. And that's not what they're talking about because that's all just fucking tax shit, you know, that's just like all behind the scenes. Uh, they're talking about college. And it, I mean, come on, man, this isn't even like the, the Austrians are not in some minority with this analysis. This is the analysis. This is the only accurate. This is like there's no legitimate school of economics that's denying that the federal student loan problem has created more expensive schools. I mean, it's just, just as simple as it can be. Anyway, so uh, what's this? Um, Let's see. So, productivity growth. But, but there's a lesser known idea about my. Mind you, I, I kind of read some of this, so we, we'll, we'll see where this goes. There's a lesser-known idea of Baumol's that is equally relevant today and that may help explain America's productivity slump. Baumol's writings writing raises the possibility that U.S. productivity is low because would-be entrepreneurs are focused on the wrong kind of work. The 1990 paper, Entrepreneurship, Product Productive, Unproductive, and Destructive, Baumol argued that the level of entrepreneurial ambition in a country is essentially fixed over time and that what determines a nation's entrepreneurial output is the incentive structure that governs and directs entrepreneurial efforts between productive and unproductive endeavors. And this is a good example as, the, as to the difference of non-Austrians and Austrians, right? The Austrians are like good thinkers, man. They're smart. You know, and they argue their positions from very strong fundamental points. And when they make an assumption that they're gonna that they're gonna build their theory on, uh, it's normally something that's like pretty obvious and easily accepted. But Baumar argued that the level of entrepreneurial ambition in a country is essentially fixed over time. I mean, based on what, like. What the fuck is entrepreneurial ambition? How are you possibly measuring that? It's like such a made-up bullshit thing, you know? And so 
there you go. I'm going to make up some bullshit assumption, and then I'm going to rest my entire argument on top of it. Yep. You know what that makes the argument? Even bigger bullshit. So whatever. It's like, who gives a fuck about this paper? This guy really does sound like he deserves a Nobel Prize, doesn't he? Uh, most people think of entrepreneurship as being the productive kind, as Balmar referred to it, where the companies that founders launch commercialize something new or better, benefiting society and themselves in the process. Sizable body of research establishes that these shumpeterian entrepreneurs, those that are creatively destroying the old in favor of the new, are critical for breakthrough innovations and rapid advances in productivity and standards of living. Okay, uh, sure. Entrepreneurship is, uh, you know, like if you don't have people starting new companies, I mean, where's like innovation coming from? You know, if you're not putting the pressure on the, the incumbents and, you know, how's that going to happen? Baumol was worried, however, by a different sort of entrepreneur, the unproductive ones who exploit special relationships with the government to construct regulatory moats, secure public spending for their own benefit, or bend specific rules to their will. In, in the process, stifling competition to create advantage for their firms. Economists call this rent-seeking behavior. Interesting. I never actually knew that that's what rent-seeking behavior is. I don't know why that's called rent-seeking behavior. I am not going to read. There's a little quote of his. Um, I think it's pretty clear what he's saying. And hey, there is a paragraph we can all agree, right? Um, you know, people that, but, you know, certainly not limited to entrepreneurs, though, right? Like, mainly what you see is this behavior in incumbents, right? I mean, that's what happens. Microsoft is like the ultimate classical example of this. Uh, Microsoft had no lobbies, no lobbyists at all. They spent no money on lobbying until all that antitrust shit came out and the fucking government went after them and tried to break them up and split out and Internet Explorer, all this shit, you know, and they, they pull them in. Now Microsoft lobbies like crazy, like everybody else, you know. I mean, you think like, I mean, like when they were in their garage, you know, Steve Jobs and, and, and Wozniak, like they also had a lobbyist. You know what I mean? Like you obviously don't start, you know, they don't, like you don't start a company with a lobbyist immediately. But I guess, you know, I, I mean, the, the lion's share of lobbyists are representing large incumbent corporations. Because the main point of regulations, right, is not to protect us. It's not to protect the consumer or the little guy. It's to protect the cover the incumbent and to raise the barrier of entry into their industry. That's the point. You know, read read about uh, Tom read Tom Woods' article on uh, or they might even probably wrote a whole book on it. Uh, but like the real truth of the robber barons, I tell you that is one of I think that is one of the biggest lies that that gets told and, and and sort of the mistelling of history is that and we, and when you sort of see that it was like that like where these sort of regulations came from and what really was happening during that time uh it's really really eye-opening i think it really helps you get a lot firmer uh more firmly entrenched in these ideas of you know what the real purpose of regulations are uh in Baumol's theoretical, 
Let's see. Okay, this isn't too long. So, um, Baumol's theoretical framework, depressed rates of entrepreneurship aren't the culprit for periods of slow economic growth, rather a change in the mix of entrepreneurial effort between the two kinds of entrepreneurship is to blame. Specifically, decline in productive entrepreneurship and a coincident rise in unproductive uh, but is this what's actually happening in the United States? Well, for starters, we and others have documented a pervasive decline in the rate of new firm formation during the last three decades and an acceleration in that decline since 2000. In fact, we found that by 2009, the rate of business closures exceeded the rate of business births for the first time in the three decades plus history of our data. The decline in startup formation has occurred in each state in nearly all metropolitan areas and in e each broad industrial sector, including high tech. There is also There has also been a slowdown in activity of high growth firms, the relatively small number of businesses that account for the lion's share of net job gains. All this points to a slowdown in the growth of productive entrepreneurship. So I'm not quite sure. Uh, I guess they're going to talk about it because I, I don't. I don't see when you're talking about business. You know, they're saying a decline in the rate of new firm formation. Uh, that seems to include all. You know, all types. So I'm not sure what they're getting at there. But the, the and that paragraph is really like the main reason I wanted to talk about uh, this article because uh, it's something I've heard. A, I've actually ran into a, a number of times. But like, listen to these. You know, listen to the the, the stats that uh, they're uh, they, these guys have been documenting it. So they're they're documenting like the rate of businesses opening, the rate of businesses closing, and they're saying that actually there's less and less businesses started every year in the United States. Uh, so the idea that like entrepreneurship is on the rise and that, you know, Silicon Valley really like blew the doors off of it and it's like a whole new era, at least from the idea of like numbers of firms started, not true. Not true. And, you know, and like uh, you know, I would say that again. That's you know, it, it, you that is what happens when you pile regulations on top of regulations on top of regulations. And I think we had a brief, you know, breath of fresh air. You know, the sunlight peeked through with the internet and dot com, and you know, then like the rise of mobile and all this stuff, and we got to see some really visible companies start, but. You know, outside of that, there's no other industries that are like, you know, uh, I mean, maybe some other tech, but you know what I mean? Like, there are more regulations today to open a restaurant than there were 10 years ago. There's more regulations today to open up a financial, you know, advisory firm than there were 10 years ago. There's more regulations today to open up anything than there was 10 years ago, including an internet company. Because now we've got these new, you know, GDPR and other shit, you know, coming down. And now, uh, you know, they're putting people in jail and saying that you're responsible for what people post on your site, you know, even if it's just sort of like a free expression thing or whatever. Like, nope, like if a woman posts an ad uh, as, a, as a prostitute on your site, like you can be thrown in jail for that. Um, so, you know, the regulations are coming and they're going to come to that as well. And, you know, maybe something else will come up. I mean, I think that's what we need. We need, we, you know, we need new technological innovation to help, 
you know, kind of keep the momentum going, at least stave off some of this entrepreneurial decline. And maybe it's like crypto and the blockchain and stuff. You know, that could be a big one. And I think if they regulate the shit out of the web too much, it's going to be, you know, dark web because that's going to be very hard for them to, to regulate for a while. You know, maybe kind of another breath of fresh air that we can start to, you know, uh, that's where we're going to have to go to sort of get away from regulations and, and try to, like, have a quasi-free market. Um you know, and stuff like, uh, we, you know, we, I guess we, we talked about it last week because of the, the 3D gun printing or the milling of the guns in your house and, you know, the legality of that and, you know, like this, this kind of um, techno-anarchists. Uh, I've, uh, I've found that over the last couple of weeks to be a really appealing concept. I'm not, I'm not saying I subscribe to it or anything, but I really, I really like it. I really like the idea that, uh, you know, technological innovation and changes are going to do more for us becoming free from, you know, an overarching ruling state than, you know, the sort of philosophical thought of, you know, like the Austrians or whatever. Um, but anyway, I will continue on. Uh, what about the other kind of entrepreneurship? Do we also see a rise in unproductive? We don't have a smoking gun to confirm this hypothesis, but there surely is smoke and it comes from two forms, rising profits, especially those earned by the largest businesses in the economy, and suggested evidence of an increase in efforts to shape the rules of the game, the patterns consistent with the rise of economic rents and rent-seeking behavior. But it's not, I mean, the biggest companies are not the entrepreneurs. It's, anyway, I, I already, it's pretty stupid. Everything, almost everything they've written is pretty fucking stupid. Um, but I do like that they're collecting these stats. Uh, I do not, it, I, I don't, you know, as usual, right, we read some fucking article and it's like, how on earth does this data back up this Balmol's theory? In, in like what way? The only thing your data has shown is that there's a decline in business starts and that now more businesses close every year than open. What like the whole thing was about rent seeking and how people are doing more more entrepreneurs are starting like rent seeking style new startups. I mean, you know, there. I mean, it's just like random papers or site. Uh. Perhaps more convincing, University of Chicago economist Simcha Barkai carefully tabulated the share of industry income distributed to labor, capital, and profits. Normally, capital and profits are included together in one broad residual returns to shareholders category. He found that the share of income earned by workers had been falling, as others have pointed out, but also the share earned by, earned by capital has too. Indeed, both have been declining while the share of income going to markups or rents has been increasing. Right, but I mean, okay, regulations are increasing, newsflash, but like you, the, what, the whole way that they're spinning it is that these startups are like this new sort of increase in rent-seeking startups, you know, not like what everything that I've read is 
covers the whole economy. It does not like what he's saying. What they're saying that paper from the University of Chicago. It's not specific. It's not specifying entrepreneurs. It's not specifying startups. It's talking about the economy as a whole. It's like okay, well, you know, startups are part of the economy as a whole. Sure, but why are you trying to say? Why are you specifically talking about them, but then only sharing data that, you know, is the economy as a whole? You know, or you're specifically trying to, to argue about rent-seeking startups, and then the only data you show applies to all startups. You know, anyway, so there you go, Harvard, Harvard Review. Way to go, guys. Really impressive, impressive writing. Um, what else did I see? Uh... Salada, so you know, it, it was a little bit down. Um, oh, I did see this, this this article in Bloomberg. But economists still don't get about the 2008 crisis. Uh, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it, but I did think it was kind of, uh, it was, you know, sort of annoying. Um, but it's interesting, like, you know, you read this article, and it, essentially the Austrians, like, we just, like, don't exist, this is not even considered. Macroeconomics, macroeconomics tends to advance or at least to change one crisis at a time. I don't, okay, I guess. I, I mean, what? Like the fucking wealth of nations. That was like a happened at a crisis. The Austrian school happened at a crisis. They tried to spin that Keynes was like the result of, uh, whatever. Uh, or at least to change one crisis at a time. The Great Depression discredited, discredited the idea that economies were basically self-correcting. No, it didn't. And the following decades saw the development of Keynesian theory and the use of fiscal stimulus. Uh, but the Fed was actually started before, and the Fed doubled the money supply in the 20s, then contracted it. Like, the idea that, like, people didn't know that the actions of the Fed were, like, directly responsible for the Great Depression is fucking laughable. Stagflation of the 70s led to the development of real business cycle models, which saw recessions as the efficient working of the economy, the central bank meddling as likely only to cause inflation. What? What? Why? I mean, they can contract the money supply, too. The painful recessions of the early 1980s saw a shift to so-called new Keynesian models in which monetary policy is the central stabilizing force in the economy. Uh, the housing bubble that peaked in 2006, the financial crisis of 2008, the Great Recession that followed constituted constitute another crisis. So far, however, it's produced mostly evolution rather than revolution in economists' conception of the business cycle. The bubble and the following crisis convinced macroeconomics that macroeconomists, sorry, that recessions often emanate from the financial sector. An idea that had often been resisted or overlooked before, clearly not by the Austrians. That has been their reasoning from, you know, fucking day one. There was immediately a flurry of activity as economics, economists hastened to shoehorn finance into their stand, standard model, models. Shoehorn finance into the... 
Into an economics... I mean... What the fuck was Kane's whole thing? Was about... I mean, it was about monetary policy. Like, I mean, I'm not, like, well read up on Keynes, but the most important thing that anything's ever credited him is, like, this kind of fucking fractional reserve crazy system and why inflation, you know, and government spending helps the economy. I mean, how is it... How do people not have finance shoehorned into their models already some now believe that the addition of finance will allow new keynesian models to forecast crises before they happen others are understandably skeptical another important insight from the great recession was that traditional monetary policy isn't always enough to stabilize the economy when interest rate hits interest rates hit zero other measures are needed why? Why why can't they just go negative? I mean it's fucking arbitrary. Why you know what I mean? Like what like there really is no I'm pretty sure Europe, I think the EU actually did go negative. But, you know, we're just randomly going to stop there. There's no actual, you know, theoretical basis for saying that, but uh when interest rates hit zero, other models are needed. These could include quantitative easing, forward guidance, or fiscal stimulus. As New Keynesian pioneer Jordy Galley noted in a recent summary, there's been much work figuring out how the New Keynesian models can deal with zero interest rates. There's also been much work of making these models more realistic by taking into account the big differences among consumers and companies. I just don't understand. There is nothing special about zero interest rate or a 0 0.01 or a negative 0 0.01. I mean, who like you're literally able to print the money out of thin air. You could lend out a million dollars and only get nine hundred thousand dollars back for the Fed. It doesn't matter, you know. I mean, I guess like a, I guess a regular bank. I mean, it doesn't really matter because they can just keep getting their money at even a low, even a, a, a more negative interest rate. Anyway, uh, there are important innovations, and they ad address glaring deficiencies in pre two thousand eight models, but they don't feel like a big break with the status quo. Uh, even though the Austrians were totally unsurprised and had been predicting the collapse of 2008, all leading up to it, for the precise reasons that it collapsed. You know, not, not like they were saying, oh, you know, uh, I, you know, I can't even think of what it would be, but some other, uh, you know, food prices are going to collapse and that's going to take the economy down. And they said, nope, they specifically were citing real estate. And the mortgage-backed securities and all that shit. Uh, there are important innovations. Oh, whoops. But they don't feel like a break with the status quo. More importantly, <laughs> the basic notion of recessions are driven by rational actors' responses to unpredictable sudden events or shocks, as economists call them, remains in place. 
That would come as a jarring surprise to many outside of academia. To lots of people, it seems obvious that the 2008 crisis was long in the making, the product of years of financial and regulatory folly. In general, the notion that economic booms caused busts instead of being random, unrelated events, an idea advanced by the maverick economist Hyman Minsky, seems to have much more currency behind the ivory tower than beyond the ivory tower than within it. So Hyman Minsky is who they credit, who I'm pretty sure he was talking about this stuff after the Great Depression. Not Friedrich Hayek. I mean, when, when did Hayek uh, win the Nobel Prize? I mean, it probably wasn't, you know, he was probably pretty old. Okay, it wasn't until 1974. Um, but he was publishing books in 1912, maybe even earlier. I mean, and this is his thing, you know? But not him, right? Not him. It's this other guy. Not, it's this fucking, you know, this guy, but not Hake. Hake who won a fucking Nobel Prize for describing this, this, this stuff. Way, 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 way back when. But, you know, let's talk about Hyman Minsky. But at least a few economists are working on something more revolutionary, a new interpretation of recessions, booms, and financial markets are more closely matched as the popular idea that business cycles are both predictable and driven by irrationality. Uh, irrationality is a weird word for Austrians because we believe that people act rationally. And the idea behind that is not that people aren't can be crazy, but it's a very specific definition you know, when Ludwig, when Ludwig von Mises talks about people act rationally, he means that they believe in what they're doing. They may be wrong, but they believe it. So their actions are to get a result that they think will happen. And that's what he means by rational. He doesn't mean anything more than that. He means, you know, if you're thirsty, you will drink a glass of water. Be, that's that's rational, but he would also argue that maybe you're thirsty, but you mistakenly think that pouring sand in your mouth is going to quench your thirst. You're you know somebody watches you. You're thirsty. You take a, a cup of sand and you pour it in your mouth. That is still rational behavior by the Mises definition of it and it's important right it doesn't that it is not incorrect he's creating a definition to work off of he is just creating a very low bar for what he's calling rational but that's all he needs that's what he needs to move forward he doesn't you know and the thing the difference between him and somebody like Karl Marx is he actually spends the time to define these things you know maybe it's boring to read but it's important if you actually want to create you know, a coherent theory. Uh, man, I feel like I built this thing up like this is a revolutionary idea and it's probably going to be stupid. Uh, 
Right. So anyway, if there are some people listening that are really into, you know, the Austrian theory, uh, I I do not believe that this irrationality is necessarily the same as, you know, what Mises is talking about. Um, And we just have to deal with the fact that words are tough and, you know, you just have to use their definition when you're reading their stuff and Mises, you know, when you're reading Mises stuff. The basics of the new idea are laid out in a presentation by Nicola Genaoli and Andre Schleifer, two behavioral finance specialists venturing into the realm of macroeconomics. Um, I gotta tell you, I don't want to read it. I'm gonna read the final paragraph and that's it. This story, if it became the standard model of the business cycle, represented true revolution in macroeconomics. From somebody, you know, this is the opinion of somebody who obviously has no fucking clue about the history of economic thought. But let's see where he goes. It discards two pillars of recent economic thought, rational expectations and shock-driven unpredictable recessions. It would represent a triumph for Minsky's ideas and for those outside ac- ac- academic academics who have long erred academy that's really weird i feel like you don't use it out rep- uh, outside of the academy who've long urged macroeconomic uh, economists to pay more attention to debt markets and human psychology and if the code of the boom and bust can finally be cracked makers that all uh there may be ways for central banks regulators and other policymakers to head off the crisis before it begin instead of cleaning up afterwards it's obvious you just don't fucking run to super low interest rates for super duper long and you don't allow banks to just borrow and borrow and borrow and borrow and borrow and lend and lend and lend and lend but that's what they do uh, so, you know, that's what we got. Um, I, I wanted to talk about kind of those two articles and we'll just do a quick look at the news. CNN, uh, report North Korea, maybe building missiles. <coughs> Bet you they have some real solid evidence to back that up. Uh, in June, Trump tweeted North Korea, no longer a nuclear threat. Okay. I guess that's, uh, interesting. Uh, here, Trump tout trust with Kim in a TV interview. North Korea hands over the possible remains of American war dead. Pompeo says North Korea denuclearization is a decades-long challenge. From rocket man to honorable, Trump's relationship with Kim. Trump says he'd meet with Iran without preconditions. Uh, you know, it. Uh, it's kind of interesting, right? So Trump like went fucking nuts recently it said some crazy shit uh, about iran and they were talking about them going to war or like threatening them i don't know all this stuff uh but isn't that exactly what he did with uh with north korea with the rocket man and everything is that it's like his weird philosophy i guess like just to like say some super outlandish stuff and then um you know, and then kind of, uh, <laughs> and then kind of, um, rein it back in. Ah, I wonder, I wonder where, like, I wonder if he, 
is doing it, uh, you know, consciously or it's just like the way the dude operates. Um, but it'd be interesting. And I, you know, um, I, I would say with Russia, I don't think he's, I mean, I, I think he may have said some things here and there, but he's actually been, you know, Trump has done a lot of sort of anti-Russian, like actual, uh, policy moves and, and military moves, but I don't think he's ever gone totally crazy, like, you know, making up some, like, ridiculous nickname for Putin. Um, but, yeah, he really went hard at Iran. And it would be interesting if, you know, this is actually some weird sign that, you know, and now they're saying he'll go talk to them uh, without preconditions. Pretty crazy, you know. Um, <coughs> so an antiwar.com. Yeah, the top article is Trump says he would meet with Iran's leaders. So addressing media questions on Monday, President Trump announced that he he will he is willing to meet with Iranian President uh, Hassan Rouhani if the Iranians are willing. He oh that's nice. I guess it's not gonna force him. He said they can meet anytime with no preconditions. The commitments come after a week of conflicting US statements on Iran, many from Trump himself. This time last week, Trump was threatening Iran with consequences the like likes of which few throughout history have ever suffered. So yeah, that was the one tweet I saw. That is crazy. He then said he was willing to make a deal just days later. <laughs> This was followed with reports as recently as last night that the U.S. is preparing to attack Iran. So, so that's why. Uh, so that that was like say. So the top story on on anti-war is that. Then right underneath it, the, so top story: Trump says he would meet with Iran's leaders. Next story: U.S. considering attacking Iran with Saudi forces leading the strike. In the United States, is the United States preparing to attack Iran? On Friday, Defense Secretary James Mattis dismissed this idea as fiction back when the sources were in the Australian military. Yet other U.S. officials have since been quoted as saying the attack is still being considered. Pretext for this war to be ongoing. <sighs> pre the pretext for this war appears to be the ongoing Yemen war. Last week, Saudi state media claimed that Yemen Houthi rebels attacked and slightly damaged a Saudi oil tanker. Saudis have previously alleged the Houthis are tied to Iran, and U.S. media is treating this as some sort of transference and reporting that Iran attacked a Saudi oil tanker, even though no one alleged that happened. Yeah, CNN politics. Just stoking up the fucking flames of war. Here's the link to this article. U.S. and allies looking at options to protect shipping lanes from Iranian threats. As tensions between U.S. and Iran ratchet up, the Trump administration looking for what military options may be needed to keep the vital waterways in the Middle East open in the wake of attacks on Saudi Arabia. Uh, Saudi oil tankers by Iranian-backed Houthi rebels on July 25th, according to two administration officials. Now, like, just take a fucking step back for a second. So they're deciding how to respond. They're in an all-out war attacking Yemen. I mean... What more response do you need? Like, I, it's, I swear to God, man, it's like taking fucking crazy pills, reading this stuff, you know? 
And all these dumb motherfuckers, man, all these people I know, like, just fucking eat this shit up, you know? Like, look, man, like, the one time they don't get crazy on Trump is when they're trying to fucking talk about him going to war. More blood. You know? Everything else, you know, he's trying to fucking denuclearize North Korea, improve relations with Russia, then they're going to attack, 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 negative, 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 negative. The instant they hear that he's talking about ramping up for war with Iran, now they're like, fuck yeah, maybe we kind of like this guy now, you know? And it's, uh, yeah, it's crazy. I'll, I'll say it. I'll talk about this. This was super fucking depressing. This uh, lawyer at my work, I guess he's like a Democrat, you know, and he's like kind of blasting Trump. And, you know, I've kind of just taken the thing of like, yeah, all right. But like, what's different? You know what I mean? It's all war. You know, the whole how the Democrats like lost like the anti-war thing, you know, when Obama came in office and he kind of agreed and he's actually a little bit older than me. So, I mean, definitely his context. And um, but at the same time, he's fucking defending the U.S. military, our actions, all this attacking as like he's a he's a neocon, man. He's a fucking neocon, a neoliberal, I guess you'll call him. Because he wants gender-neutral bathrooms, I guess. Uh, but he's definitely wants fucking blood in the Middle East. I mean, he wouldn't fucking back down on Yemen. You know what his response was? It was, oh, they've been fighting each other for thousands of years. Like, it doesn't matter. You know? Like, they're fucking animals. He believed that, that, like, that's where the Democrats have gone now? That it's like, ah, they're just like a bunch of fucking animals, you know? Just eating sand and whatever, living in huts, you know? I mean, that's where they're at? You know what I mean? Like, that's the fucking neocon take. You know, that's what I heard for years from the neocons. He would try to argue, you know, and now, oh, and his other thing was, well, if you were president in 9-11, you, you know, you're telling me, you know, you wouldn't have went to war in Afghanistan. And I was like, I definitely wouldn't. And and now I'm obviously would have been right because it's 18 years later and nothing's come from it. You know, <laughs> like, good fucking God, man. We fucking destroyed, like... A bunch of countries killed millions of people, you know? I mean, I, you know, I, I know that you can't always use analogies, but I feel like it really fits. Like, you know, if, if I'm watching a friend of mine, you know, and I mean, it doesn't have to be a fucking friend of mine. It's just somebody that happens to be in the building I'm in. And, you know, I see him go into the building next door and just beating people up, beating people up over and over and over. This is going on for weeks, you know? And, you know, maybe him and some of his buddies go over, and I'm sitting in my building, like, maybe I don't even notice. I kind of know, whatever. You know, at some point, you know, I'm sitting there, 
some fucking dude from that building finally comes over and he like beats the shit out of somebody, you know? And he's yelling like, stop fucking, you know, attacking us. Leave us alone. Whatever. Beats this dude up, you know, some other guy. And he goes back, and now this fucking dumbass lawyer at my work is saying, oh my god, you know, you're not gonna fucking, like, ramp up the attacks? And it's like, no, man. Like, I wasn't attacking the Middle East since the 50s. You know, that wasn't me. Like, this, their response after 9-11 wasn't directed at me. You know, like, I was against it. I mean, I, I was totally oblivious to most of it as I wasn't alive or I was just way too young. But you know what I mean? Like, I've never been for attacking fucking third world countries. It's just insane. I mean, it's like like their lives aren't fucked up enough. We got to start launching missiles at them over and over and over and over. I mean, anyway, I you know, I it, re it was like... It was a fucking bummer, man. I mean, like, I know I talk a lot about, about how the Democrats and, like, uh, how the anti-war movement was dudded and they're no longer anti-war. But just, like, seeing it and so, like, I brought it up before and, like, I've had people try to argue that somehow Trump's worse than Obama or whatever. And it's like, that's not the point. The point is it shouldn't even be fucking close. Like, it, it should be so obvious that you don't even have to make an argument, you know? It should be Ron Paul obvious. You know, not Barack Obama, obvious, because it's not obvious that Barack Obama, you know, did that, you know, and oh my God, this guy's super pro drone strikes. Like, what a fucking sick motherfucker, man. You know, like, and he's a super nice person. I mean, I guess he just, he just believes that we're just in this mortal danger. You know, his whole thing was like, wow, there hasn't been an attack since then. It's like, well, I mean, actually, there have been a number of attacks by, like, you know, Muslims in the United States. They haven't knocked down a building, but a guy fucking shot up Orlando nightclub. They're going fucking bananas in Europe. What about the fucking shooting? Remember the whole iPhone thing? They were trying to get Apple to crack the i or, or crack the iPhone. The FBI was those those people that shot up a bunch of people in California. I mean, it shit happens. They shot up, a, uh, I think, a military base. You know, whatever. I mean, it's like nothing's happening. But his fucking stupid belief is that. Because we've gone to war in there is the reason we haven't seen something like 9-11 since that. And it's like, bro, it's the fucking opposite of the truth. Like, I don't know, I, you know, I don't want to get into the fucking 9-11 conspiracy right now. Let's just say it is what it is at face value. Then just be fucking counting your lucky stars. Because there's probably a thousand times more terrorists now that are fucking wanting with a fucking itchy suicide bomb finger. Wanting to blow up the fucking U.S. Or like fucking people in the U.S. Than there was in 9-11. There's so many more of them now. Like it didn't do anything to help you know I mean, anyway so that was so fucking depressing uh talking to that guy uh this week you know and and just seeing you know seeing this article and 
just they get so fucking jazzed up, man. They're all, they're all, you know, and I mean, he's an older guy. I mean, I know, you know, I got these like super liberal, like friends of mine, these chicks that like fucking do all this like tarot card reading and like trying to get in touch with their, you know, feminine spirits and everything. And I know like in their hearts, they're not pro war, but. I mean, you know, it, it's like the, uh, you know, what about all the Germans that, like, didn't, you know, go full Nazi, you know, but kind of supported it, stuck their head in the sand. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, we got, you know, we've got millions of bodies, you know, since, nine, since, since you know, 9-11, basically, since, like, starting 2002. It's a lot. It's fucking serious. And, uh, you know, and so, I mean, we're it, man. We're the fucking last bastion of hope. The libertarians. I mean, that, that's that got to fucking drive you a little bit, right? Feel like a little bit passionate. That's like, we're it, man. Like, without the libertarian voice, it may be... I give you credit, you know, I mean, I'm sure, like, the Green Party's super anti-war. Uh, but, you know, like, these scattered independents. Uh, that's it. Republicans and Democrats are all on board, you know. Uh, so, <laughs> that's what's going on in our beautiful world today. And this last week, a bunch of dummies talking about dumb stuff, people killing people in the name of fucking righteousness or freedom or America or self-defense, right? <laughs> it's a line in that that song, you know, uh, how you claim self-defense if you shoot me in my house, you know? It's like, you break into my house, point a gun at me, and then shoot me, and then claim self-defense. And I've got, like, you know, a little stick in my hand. That's that's what we're doing in the Middle East. You know what I mean? It's fucking nuts. So, what else we have? We have Saudis resume strikes on the Yemen port city. But they are, like, blown away that an oil tanker was attacked. Israeli force kills five Gazans, including a 12-year-old child. Very positive signals after U.S. Taliban talks. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, maybe they'll they'll fucking wrap up this this war in Afghanistan. Uh, 30 bodies found and 21 killed in Iraq. Electricity ministers dismissed. I don't know what he was doing, but it fucked up. Yeah, man, it's not good, not good. Well, hopefully Trump does sit down with Iran, continues to be a chill dude with Putin, continues to, like, denuclearize, you know, with North Korea. Because as much as, I mean, you know, whatever you believe about, like, the Illuminati or Freemasons or the Bilderberg group. I mean, unless you're like 
fully into like the reptilian alien conspiracy and you believe that these, you know, dark cabal guys are still humans. I mean, they don't want to live in a nuclear wasteland. Like that's like not anybody's goal. So, you know, I don't think they'd want, you know, I don't think they're like, I like, I think they like us to be afraid of that. So they can sort of use that to, you know, further control, uh, and get some other things, you know, rammed down our throat and pass that we wouldn't normally. Um, but I don't believe that, you know, they wish to live in a nuclear wasteland uh, as, you know, any more than, you know, any of the rest of us. Um, but that being said, it's like the reality is that these, you know, weapons do exist and they're fucking unbelievably powerful, you know. And there's this fear that like once, you know, there could just be this one mistake one country makes and it sets off some crazy train rea chain reaction you know we don't want that so really big I, I mean as much as i you know i i focus on the middle east and everything like that um you know anything dialing back like nuclear threat and pressure in that realm is you know really good uh, all right. Well, I'm going to wrap it up there. Uh, it seems like around 90 minutes is, is like my sweet spot episode. I start getting like sore throat. I don't have a drink here or anything. Um, but, uh, yeah, keep your eyes open, everybody. And I will, uh, I will make a really concerted effort to give you another episode before this coming weekend. But I can promise it. Uh, but until next time, take it easy. Peace.